This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The 2023 spring primary election on February 21st will see four candidates running for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The conservative candidates are Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Doro and former state Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly. The liberal candidates are Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell and Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protesewitz. All four met in a forum held in Madison yesterday to discuss their top their candidacies. Redistricting of the state's maps was a major point of contention, with the liberal candidates calling out the current legislative maps, quote, rigged and extreme, unquote, according to the Associated Press. Both conservative candidates deflected the question. When asked about redistricting, Kelly said that if brought before him, he would only consider legal precedent. Doro did not respond other than to say that the issue is likely to come before the high court after the election. The race for a state Supreme Court could flip its political balance of power. Currently, conservatives have a three, a four to three majority, but with conservative justice Patience Rogensack retiring, liberals have a chance to take the majority. A new report from the MacArthur Foundation finds that Native Americans across the United States are up to seven times more likely to be incarcerated than white people. The report also found that indigenous people are more harshly sentenced than other ethnicities and are overrepresented in the prison populations in 19 states. The Green Bay Press-Gazette reports that this pattern is the case in Wisconsin. In a 2021 investigation, the publication found that in Wisconsin counties that contain a reservation, indigenous people can be overrepresented in county jails by as much as five times as white people. For example, in Vilas County, which contains the Lac de Flambeau Reservation, nearly half of the people incarcerated in the county jail between January 2015 and December 2020 identified as either American Indian or Alaskan Native, even though only 11% of the residents in Vilas County are Native American. Large commercial buildings in Madison may have to submit annual energy use reports and partake in regular energy tune-ups, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. A proposal by Mayor Sacha Rhodes-Conway and three city council members would create a building energy savings program to help commercial building owners reduce their carbon footprints. The program would require commercial buildings larger than 25,000 square feet to record and report their annual energy use, and buildings larger than 50,000 square feet to perform an energy tune-up every four years. Tune-ups are conducted by performing low-cost adjustments or maintenance to the building. If passed by the city council, the program would affect around 680 buildings meeting the 25,000 square feet threshold and around 310 more that are at least 50,000 square feet. The program was introduced earlier this month and could go to the full council as soon as February 7th. The Madison Metropolitan School District is working to help students find a new place to learn after last week's announcement that the private One City Schools is ending its 9th and 10th grade classes. One City Schools cites lack of teachers to the sudden closure. MMSD is opening an emergency enrollment center to help place the estimated 51 students find a new school within the district, reports WISC-TV. The enrollment center will also offer counselors to help support students and families through the transition process, as well as orientations for students to familiarize themselves with the different campuses. The last day of class for the two grades will be on January 20th. Meanwhile, the union representing MMSD teachers is calling on One City Schools to return almost half a million dollars in money the district funded to help open those grades. Madison Teachers Inc. says that unless displaced students register with an MMSD school by Friday, the district will not receive funding to help those students for the spring. 
Meanwhile, the Madison School District is considering giving a pay raise to summer school employees, reports the Capital Times. That comes after the district cut summer school staff pay significantly last summer, leading to staffing shortages that forced the district to unenroll hundreds of students from summer school. The suggestion to increase pay, which was introduced at last night's school board meeting, would see summer school staff making $40 an hour, which is what they made in 2021, but $12 more than what they made last summer. While school board officials say that they are still in the initial thinking stage of a raise, a vote about on the matter could come as soon as later this month. And now on to today's top stories. The Madison building that was once the home base of the credit union movement in the United States was recommended to be designated a historic landmark by a city commission. That decision poses a problem for developers who hope to demolish the building and replace it with housing. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has more. Last night, Madison's Landmarks Commission voted to designate a Sherman Avenue property as a historic landmark. In a unanimous vote, the commission recommended the so-called Feline House to be preserved for its role in housing the beginnings of the credit union movement. The property was built in 1950 as the headquarters of the Credit Union National Association, or CUNA, and served as the home for credit unions across the globe. The building even received national attention at the time as President Harry Truman gave a dedication speech for the building, lauding the American Credit Union movement. Kuna moved out of the building in 1979 and the building is currently home to CARE Wisconsin. Now, developers are looking to demolish the building and build 400 apartments in its place. Chicago-based developers Vermilion Development submitted plans to the city in October. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the group plans on building two five-story apartments and three two-story townhouses on the property. The development group, Vermilion Development out of Chicago, has revised their plan a couple of times. I know that they are um, busily at work trying to get that buttoned up and into the, the city development hopper hoping to foreclose the landmark designation. That's John Rawling, a retired real estate appraiser who filed a proposal to designate the Feline House as a historic landmark. Rawling holds a Ph.D. in history and lived next door to the Feline House in the 1970s. He says that while the building has no real aesthetic contribution to Madison, it marks an important moment in history. I'm not talking about particular architectural significance. What we are, however, remembering here is the, the history and the association with an, an important economic and social force in the United States, uh, and, and certainly in Madison. That's why we'd, we would recognize it. A designation as a historic landmark would not mean that all development on the site has to stop, city preservation planner Heather Bailey told WORT yesterday. Instead, a historic designation would require the developer to incorporate the existing building into their new designs. It's not about keeping this standing, this property exactly the way it is, which is the office building and then a whole bunch of surface parking lot. It is about the ways in which the city is evolving and integrating the historic resources into the way that it is evolving. But Matt Harvey with Vermilion Development says that keeping the existing building would destroy any plans to build housing on the site. Vermilion commissioned a report by Isthmus Architecture 
which is traditionally a historical preservationist and focuses on the revitalization of the existing buildings. Yet, given that mandate, Isthmus uh, observed that converting this structure to multifamily use would require a replacement of the entire rear, rear entrance, the roof, mechanical systems, all fixed windows, and the entire interior. So for all those who are on the phone claiming that this building can be reused as multifamily to add additional, much needed additional housing stock for the city, I uh, hate to inform you, but that's not the case for the existing building. Whether or not to designate the former Kuna building as historic has generated considerable public interest. The public comment period at last night's meeting lasted for an hour. In addition, the city has received around 30 pages of written public comment. Melissa Huggins, who spoke at last night's meeting, told the commission that the building does not warrant being considered a historic landmark. This is a key redevelopment site that will help the city meet its ongoing need. It's in close proximity to transit. And just given the focus that the city is having on transitory and development, I think it is very important and it's irresponsible to not take that into consideration with regards to the landmarking of this building. But Rawling, the retired appraiser who filed to designate historic landmark status, says there are only a handful of buildings designated by the city, and the Kuna building should be one of them. Sure, cities adapt and change all the time. We have to do that or else they die. But in doing so, we need to recognize some of those properties that are important for us to, to maintain a connection to the past. The Kuna building isn't a historic landmark yet. The Landmark Commission's recommendation to designate the property as a historic landmark heads now to the Madison Common Council, likely next month. If Vermillion is able to get a land use proposal in before the building is designated historic, then the developer would be held to the standards in place when it was submitted and could still have the opportunity to demolish the building. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Yesterday, we kicked off our coverage of the 2023 spring primary election by talking with one of the three candidates running for Madison's District 2 Alder seat. Today, we continue our coverage of the primary race for this seat. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wagehout spoke with Evan McSorley, who will be on the February 21st ballot for this district covering the north side of the Isthmus. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with more than three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 2. That district sits on the north side of the Isthmus downtown around the UW campus. One of the candidates in that district is Evan McSorley, who joins me now by phone. Evan, thank you so much for talking with me. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me on the call today. Yeah, of course. Well, just to start things off, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, Evan? Nate, so I moved to Madison, Wisconsin about five and a half years ago without knowing much about the city, uh, anything about what the city was doing to, to grow and to change. I knew that it was a hidden gem in the Midwest from what I heard, but I moved here without knowing anybody, without knowing anything about the neighborhoods, and I have come to understand and recognize that Madison is a special place for folks who have grown up here, as well as for all the trans transplants who have moved to the city. And Evan, what do you do professionally? I work for Columbia Pipe and Supply. It's a company that distributes uh, plumbing and building material for the local mechanical contractors and engineers. 
And now you sort of touched on it a little bit, but why are you running for older here in Madison? There's no time like now to be a part of something that you cherish. I realize our city is growing as we all do. And with growth brings many challenges from rising housing costs, transportation demand management, uh, clean water in our lakes, and keeping our streets safe. With complex issues, demand leaders who are invested in the long term. And we need folks who are energetic about being a part of something that is close to home. I plan on being a resident in Madison for the long term. And when we have these growth moments in our city, I want to be a part of it and not watch it from the sidelines. And have you ever previously held any type of elected office? In the city of Madison, no. And previously, no, this is something new to me. Uh, But like I said, I feel energized about getting involved with my neighborhood and supporting my neighbors with the District 2 Alder seat. And now, Evan, what do you do in your free time when you're not working or working on the campaign? Well, Nate, what's nice about Madison is that, if you haven't noticed, we sit right in between two lakes. I really like to kiteboard. It's one of the hobbies that I got invested into a few years ago. So I like to kiteboard. Um, I love biking around the lakes. I like gardening. I have a lot of friends who live in the city where we like to go camping. We travel up north. Uh, I am a Packer fan, so sometimes I'll get up to Lambeau for a Packer game. And visiting the local restaurants in town, I mean, there's no, there's, it's pretty easy to uh, check out a new place every time if you'd like. So I think that that's one of Madison's attributes is that there's so much going on between the different cultural things you can do or the hobbies. This town offers so much for all of us who have different interests and hobbies. And my condolences for this last Sunday as a Packer fan. I know it was quite hard. (laughs) Uh, So now moving on to, you know, looking at Madison, what are some of the most pressing issues facing the city that you would want to address as Alder? So as a renter in Madison, one of the city's issues is rising housing costs. There's no easy answer to address when it comes to housing, but it is something that many Madison residents are feeling, not just not just hearing about, but feeling themselves. So addressing the housing market and making sure that the market is meeting the demand that's there. Madison's growing and projected to continue to grow over the next two decades. And as we have this influx of new people and people who desire to live here, we need to make sure that we're addressing those needs. Also transportation demand management. We have a desire for better city operations with transportation. And it's not just about getting from point A to point B, but how do we incorporate local businesses and the neighborhoods in making Madison more accessible from the farther out neighborhoods? And then stormwater management is something that is very important in District 2. Because we sit right in between two lakes and we have flood zones, we need to make sure that the water that's going into the lakes and leaving the lakes is being managed properly. And like I said earlier, complex issues in Madison demand leaders who are invested in the long term. So often we sit, sit by and say, man, I would love to see this change or we need to have people who want to be invested in the city. Well, here I am putting my foot in the circle. You don't always have the answers right away. But I tell you what, when you do have a desire to go in and get your hands in the dirt, you can really start to feel and have an impact 
on something that your neighbors and your neighborhood holds close to their heart. And now you sort of mentioned it there. You are in District 2, and that is a a very student-heavy district, at least in one part of it, sort of around the university there. What have you heard from your potential constituents? Uh, What are a few specific issues to your district that you really feel passionate about? My neighbors love Madison, and they want to see the streets of Madison continue to be safe, as well as because we live right downtown, District 2 has part of James Madison Park. So there's some issue, not issues, but there's some areas in our neighborhood that folks love spending time in, and that would be the local parks, making sure that the parks are clean, making sure that the lake is clean, making sure that the streets are cleaned up. And it goes back to the neighbors wanting someone who's invested in making sure that Madison's growing properly and that we're continuing to clean up, clean our streets. And now I want to get into a few specific issues facing Madison here, starting off with uh, transit. As you know, bus rapid transit is set to be taking into effect this summer. How do you feel about that? I support improving our bus rapid transit system. I know that's one of the mayor's main focal points. And as long as we are designing it so that it supports all of Madison residents and not just a few, I think that slowly but surely we can accomplish that. And now, like I said, District 2 there has a lot of uh, student housing there. And uh, as you mentioned before, housing is a pretty big issue for you. Uh, What key initiatives would you like to see to get more affordable housing here in Madison? I think it's important that we continue to address the housing issue, especially in District 2. It's something that the entire city is facing and making things more accessible for builders to provide new housing developments. So as the Common Council is able to, you know, looking at each opportunity on an individual level and addressing that need at the time, because we need more housing and because there's so much demand, we need to make it more accessible for builders to accomplish that. Now, again, because District 2 is right downtown and the density is higher here than in other areas, we need to make sure that we do that correctly and that we don't just shoot from the hip, but rather have a good plan in place on the front end so that we're growing effectively and that in 10 years' time we can look back and say, we did that right, and not just, well, we did it as as fast as we can to address it now. But I think that slow growth and correct growth is the way to address affordable housing. And now the final issue I want to take a look at is the F-35s, which are going to be touching down in Madison later this year. How do you feel about the F-35s? Uh, that's, a, uh, that's a challenging issue in itself. If, if there was an easy answer, I think it would have been addressed five to ten years ago. The F-35s is something that the Common Council will need to look at as a team, because not just one alder, but all 20 alders, We'll be looking at that issue more specifically. So that's a question that I honestly don't have a good answer for at this time. Now, Evan, sometimes issues at the city council get complicated. Uh, Let's say that there's an issue where some of your constituents want to see a policy happen and other constituents want to see the opposite happen. How How would you handle that situation? Well, every situation is going to be different. And I think it's important to look at the big picture. Again, not just looking at how is this going to benefit us now, but looking in 10 years, where is this policy going to take us? 
And every issue is going to be different, but it's a team effort when you're on the common council. There's 20 of us, there would be 20 of us who are thinking about the city, but also for our specific district. So I think it's best to get get and collect all the information up front and then as a team come to a conclusion that's going to best service the entire city and not just a specific group of people. Some issues are going to have clean clean and clear-cut answers and others won't. And that's just a part of why it's important to make sure we're making good decisions for the long term of the city. Now, Evan, do you have just any final thoughts of anything that you would like people to know? I would like to just say thank you to my neighbors and thank you to the residents of Madison. We all love Madison for what it is and where it's going. I do think that there's complex issues that will need to be addressed and that are always being looked at. But I think it's also important to set realistic goals, pushing through big agenda items and not just proposing them. I'm here to serve my neighbors and the other residents of Madison. And again, I just think that while you have the energy to do or to get involved and um, to be a part of something that you cherish is, you know, do it while you have the energy to do it and the importance of continuity of public service. I've been talking with Evan McSorley, an older candidate running in the spring primary election for District 2. That primary election takes place on February 21st, and the 2023 spring general election takes place on April 4th. Evan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Nate, thank you for having me, and I, um, I hope everybody gets out and votes. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. The Wisconsin legislature is ready to go back in session, and Republican lawmakers are looking to pass a series of constitutional amendments that would give them power over everything from distributing federal funding for the state to how cash bail gets set. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with representatives from the League of Women Voters, the Democracy Research Initiative, and Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or EXPO, to learn more about what powers the legislature is looking to grant itself. In their last session, the Wisconsin legislature voted to approve four amendments to the state constitution. The amendments would affect when legal defendants are subject to cash bail, change voter eligibility in national, state, and local elections, change local election administration, and limit the governor's authority to allocate federal funds. If approved a second time in the upcoming 2023 legislative session, the amendments will go to the public for a final referendum vote. The League of Women Voters of Wisconsin has come out in opposition to all four measures. Joining us right now is Dustin Brown, staff attorney for the State Democracy Research Initiative. We're hoping to get Sue Jenick from the League of Women Voters on the phone and Jerome Dillard from Expo on the line shortly. But Dustin, let's start with you. Can you describe what each of these amendments would do? Uh, Yes, I'll start with just kind of a very kind of quick overview of each of the amendments. Uh, The First Amendment concerning bail. That would allow judges to impose bail in more situations, uh, making it more difficult for some criminal defendants to be released before a trial. 
Uh, the second proposed amendment concerning the spending of federal funds would change uh, the, the balance of power in distributing federal funds that the state receives. Right now, when Wisconsin receives federal funding, the governor decides on his own how to spend it. This amendment would give the legislature a say, and it would potentially increase the legislature's power over appropriations generally. Uh, the third proposed amendment on the eligibility of non-citizens to vote, a state statute already limits voting to U.S. citizens, and this amendment would put that actually in the Constitution and make that prohibition um, of non-citizen voting more explicit. And finally, um, the last one concerns private funding for elections. Uh, this amendment would ban any government in the state from accepting private donations or other help to run elections. And we're joined on the line now by Jerome Dillard of X, Executive Director of X Incarcerated People Organizing, or Expo. Welcome, Jerome. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about the cash bail changes and what would these mean for defendants? Well, uh, I'm I'm a little disturbed about it. fact is, uh, we have cash bail. It would give the legislators more power to determine who's going to be released on, on bail. And we already have a system that is, is backlogged. And I, my fear is that uh, many, many people will linger in jail who shouldn't be there and who shouldn't be there. And also the understaffed, overworked jail employees, prison employees right now. I mean, there's a, a, a huge gap in personnel shortage for uh, all the in, in both industries. The it would just overcrowd our jails. I think it would be very expensive uh, if this is legislated. How bail is done is uh, not that we're going to a no cash bail system. We already have a bail system in place that is working. Just on the heels of a, a tragedy in Waukesha, that this came up and it gives uh, the legislators uh, the power, more power and determine uh, what bail would look like. And I think that that just remain in the hands of judges and prosecutors and attorneys. And Dustin, so tell us a little bit more about the constitutional amendment process. I mean, one of the significant things about the amendments is that they don't, they're not subject to a gubernatorial veto, right? Exactly. So um, the process for amending the Constitution, as you said earlier, it's a three-step process where it starts um, with the legislature in one session approving the language that would go into the Constitution. Then following election, the next session of the legislature would have to approve that exact same language. And also they would come up with the ballot language that voters would see on the ballot itself when they vote on, on the amendment. And then finally, the last step is that it would um, it would go to the voters. And doing making changes in law this way through amendment rather than through traditional legislation. The legislature would do it for, for a few reasons. One, as you said, it avoids the possibility of a veto by the governor since the governor doesn't have a say in the process of amending the Constitution. Second, if the state constitution actually already addresses a topic and the goal is to change what the Constitution says, then the amendment process is the way to do this. And finally, if the legislature's goal is to supersede ordinary le existing <laughs> legislation or to prevent the legislature from enacting a certain kind of legislation in the future, the the Constitution is the supreme law of the state, so it would supersede any other legislation. Now, do, are any of these issues that are brought up in these four amendments addressed in the Constitution right now? Um, yes. So the bail amendment um, that would change what the Constitution says 
about bail. So that would itself be a change to what's in the Constitution. In terms of the appropriation of federal funds, this would add a a new provision to the Constitution. There is generally a provision about appropriations, but but this would add a new section to the Constitution. Regarding voter eligibility, this would change, um, change some language in the Constitution. Right now, the Constitution says that every United States citizen age 18 or older who's a resident of an election district is an elector, and, but but this would actually change that language. Every United States citizen to only a United States citizen. Um, so to make that restriction of voting to citizens more explicit. And finally, um, the last provision about private funding for elections, that would be adding a new provision to the Constitution that does not already exist. So that's something that that could be done by statute if the governor would support it, but he does not. We're joined on the line now by Sue Jenick, who's program director for the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz, Sue. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and happy that you are addressing this important topic. So tell us about how did the League of Women Voters come to its position on these amendments? Okay, so the, the League of Women Voters normally follows legislation. We have a state legislative committee that looks at all legislation that's been passed. And when we have a position on an issue that's presented, then that is often registered with the the state and we register our support or opposition. These four amendments were all passed in the last legislative session. We actually, the lead took a position on three of them in opposition, the fourth, Regarding the governor's authority, we have not taken a position on as of this point, although our our legislative committee, we haven't registered our position on it as of this point, but the legislative committee is in opposition to that one as well. So is there still time to lobby state legislators on these, these issues? Sue, let's start with you. Well, there certainly is, because in order for, as as Dustin has said, in order for any proposed amendment to go on the ballot, it must be approved by two legislative sessions. So although these have been approved in the past, in the 2021-22 session, they, in order to be on the ballot, they would also have to be approved in the 23-24 session. And that hasn't happened yet. I think it's, you know, the time when when they are considering it. And if people agree with our position, they should contact their state legislators and let that be known. And Dustin, if, if you can, I mean, tell us, how do other states handle this issue of governors being able to allocate federal funds? Is that something is that something that varies from state to state or is that is something that varies from state to state? But I think um, a majority of states um, do give the governor um, some discretion to allocate federal funds that, that come in in this way. And when we look at things like cash bail, uh, Jerome Dillard, do we see is there a common practice for how cash bail is is handled in different states? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, well, it, it is handled different in different states. Uh, I know what they're going through in Illinois, going with a no-cash bill system. Uh, it's it's uh, been confusing for everyone there. The fact of the matter is, you know, my concerns, I know when this was first proposed, uh, that there would be a minimum cash bill amount for individuals based on their history 
And that's very concerning to me. All right. We've been speaking with uh, Dustin Brown of the State Democracy Research Initiative, Jerome Dillard of Expo, and Sue Jenick of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Sue, Dustin, Jerome, thank you all for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you follow the Dane County Humane Society on Instagram, then you've probably already met the Garbage Goose, one of its animal rehab center's newest guests. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains how the goose came into their care and why the bird was given such a distinctive nickname. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to give a heartwarming winter update about our wildlife center, which is that we have some really fun patients that are here in our care right now. If you haven't yet, please feel free to go onto our Facebook page or our Instagram with Dane County Humane Society. We have our own Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center Facebook page and then the Dane County Humane Society Instagram, but it's really fun if you haven't read the story about our little lone Canada goose. It was one of our last patients that came in in 2022 and it was a goose that was found at Stricker's Pond and there were so many people out there in the community who were calling us and asking about this bird. You know it was such a hard case because we weren't able to help access it and it wasn't really in a great spot for safety reasons for the public to go get it. But finally there was an opportunity for our animal service officers that Uh, help us out in Dane County and they were able to capture the bird and it was just really great because this goose you know we were really worried we're like oh this bird has been alone all by itself for you know a while it's been at least a week or more it was found in the soccer field that was nearby and then it had been alone for a lot of the time maybe a couple of days at least until the entire flock it was with had migrated and so seeing that one single bird you know frigid temperatures no other geese the community support here in this case was just awesome just to be able to get the reports through animal services for helping to capture it and then getting it brought into Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. (laughs) This goose is just the cutest, daintiest little goose. It is a Canada goose. It is not a cackling goose, which we did take measurements just to be sure because it is on the smaller side. Yes, there's quite a few subspecies of different geese of the Canadian goose kind of if we're talking from a family group or from a species and then subspecies, it is something we have to consider. Like, okay, a cackling goose looks just like a Canada goose, but it's a lot smaller, but it is indeed a Canada goose and it does have injuries. So a lot of times we get very nervous about a bird, especially a goose or a crane or a heron that might've been out in the environment during these freezing temperatures alone. Cause usually that indicates that there's some kind of fracture that is causing them to not be able to fly. Sometimes it's a leg injury, but a lot of times those birds are able to fly away. So in this case, it was a bird on the ground, not flying. So, you know, what's wrong with this bird? At first, honestly, it was really difficult for our staff to be able to to identify if there was even a problem um, because it was, you know, it had already been a week and we were like, well, it's a dehydrated bird. 
maybe a little bit of weight loss, but why is this goose not flying? So we do things like take x-rays or radiographs. We also do blood work. So a complete workup would include a, a pack cell volume. So how much blood percentage is there for talking in the gar- cardiovascular system, total protein levels in the plasma, white blood cell counts, everything that you could think of diagnostically, even to you know identifying parasites in a fecal float or a, a direct fecal. So looking to see if there's anything that would be causing him to not feel very well, for example, because parasites can overload. That's not really something we think of as much in the winter, but, you know, our next thing is, you know, okay, what about avian influenza? We've got that still going on right now. It could be any number of issues. And I would say with geese, a lot of times we're finding more physical injuries, but if they're not obvious, then we're starting to think about viruses or we're thinking lead toxicity, but none of these actually were the case. And this bird actually did have physical trauma and the x-rays were able to show us that there was a humerus fracture, but it was really close up in the shoulder, like right where the shoulder socket and the, the arm or the wing in this case for the bird comes together in the deltoid crest. And so this particular spot, it was actually really subtle. It was just a small enough fracture that you could just detect it on x-rays, but that wouldn't be very easy for us to feel, you know, when we're performing our physical exams. So the good thing is the bird decided not to fly because of the fracture, most likely. If you imagine a fracture is going to hurt a lot and it takes a lot of time and effort to keep that wing in a good position usually to heal. So the I think the benefit of this was the location of the fracture and the fact that the bird really didn't try to fly, maybe from pain or other, but that actually kept it in a natural good position as if we had put it in a wrap ourselves at the rehabilitation center. So it's great because birds actually have a very fast rate of healing in their bones, which for us, it's usually seven to 10 days before we're gonna start seeing a callus. For larger birds like this, it might be something like 21 days of cage rest for a fractured bone to heal, which is a lot faster than you'd think of for our mammals. Like if you were to break your leg, you're going to be in a cast for months. Well, birds are just incredibly amazing at healing. And it does have to do a lot with their bone structure, their bone type, the fact that they have hollow bones. There's a lot that goes into it, but their regeneration is just much more rapid than it would be for mammals. So. If you go on to our social media and you get to see some of the pictures that we have, we have an x-ray of the goose. You can see the fracture. (laughs) This goose is just one of the funniest geese that I think I've worked with, in all honesty. It's together with our uh, American white pelican and tundra swan that are two birds that are uh, in care here for the winter until we can finalize permanent placement. They have injuries that unfortunately are not going to make them releasable birds, but we are giving them time just to be in a group of waterfowl, uh, especially since they're so social, you know, the swan, the goose, and the pelican all together in what we were calling our waterfowl menagerie. It's one room with all of them in it, but the goose really enjoys staying up on top of a countertop that we have in that room, because typically that room is used for other animals, but it sits and watches out the window, and it's 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 just too funny. It just kind of sits there and watches the outside world. I think it really wants to be free, just anecdotally, and I think, you know, anytime they can access and get up to a high spot or out the window, that actually makes us feel really good that this fracture is hopefully healing because they can get that elevation to go up. So the goose spends most of its time up on a countertop, kind of away from the pelican and the swan, which is really sweet. 
And you can please enjoy the one photo of our goose actually uh, deciding for some reason to fly and land into the garbage can the first day it was here. We, we kindly nicknamed it Garbage Goose, but not because it is a, you know, it's something that would happen intentionally, just happened to be in there one day. And we thought it was kind of humorous because that has not actually happened before. And But it's just a small, dainty goose. It was able to get into something so narrow. We, we found it kind of funny. It's something we laugh about in wildlife rehabilitation, but obviously know that we want to respect these birds for for who they are that they are wild and and obviously this goose was not attracted to the things in the garbage can just happened to probably try to fly up and then missed maybe the countertop initially but it is quite humorous and it is funny it's something that we kind of like to share is just that really like feel good like oh goose you did a funny thing today while you were in care because it's not something they would naturally be inclined to do in the wild so anyways this goose the swan the pelican all hanging out they're just a fun bunch and it's just it felt like such a great story to talk about for the winter time uh, since we know that at least the goose hopefully will be one of those release candidates and that gets along you know decently well with our swan and our pelican and so that is our story here uh, right now for our winter time uh, we've just been enjoying the many honks from the swan we have enjoyed caring for them every day it's a lot of messy cleanup and a lot of food and um, honestly so many greens for a time period in the winter in wisconsin where we don't have any natural greens to give them so it's quite expensive to care for them but we know that we're giving them ultimately the best care possible while they're recovering and you know keeping them in a safe place at the Humane Society. So that's what we do in rehabilitation, helping those individual animals with really great stories and um, obviously ones that have a good outcome for their future. And uh, we thank all of the supporters that help us in following our fun stories like this on social media so that we can hopefully gain some more donations for the program to be able to continue to do the work that we do. So have you ever found a wild animal or maybe there's a single goose in your neighborhood? You're not sure what to do with it. Well, then we've got a couple of things that you can do. But first, we should have you call the Wildlife Center at 608-287-3235. And if you think the animal is in need of help, check out our website at www.giveshelter.org for rescue information. And otherwise, just definitely help us triage this uh, this type of situation that you've got and get us a photo if you can, because it will help us in being able to assess the situation even better over the phone. So thanks again for listening. Uh, this has been uh, Wildlife Weekly here on WORT. And enjoy. And thanks again for listening about our wonderful waterfowl menagerie and our goose for the winter season. We all know that Earth's atmosphere is what allows us to breathe and other animals to sustain life, but what about other planets? On this week's archival edition of Radio Astronomy, host Rourke Habegger looks at a planet far, far away to explain how scientists are able to study the atmosphere of exoplanets. Hello, welcome to Radio Astronomy, a collaboration between the UW-Madison Astronomy grad students and WORT 89.9. I'm Rourke Habegger, and today we'll be talking about exoplanet atmospheres. To clarify, atmosphere does not mean weather. An atmosphere can tell us a lot about a planet and about its history, but we aren't trying to guess whether it will be raining or snowing on an exoplanet. Instead, we're worried about the chemical composition of these exoplanets. Earth's atmosphere, for example, is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and there's another 1% that's a mix of everything from argon to carbon dioxide. The important part is that chemical makeup 
is what allows us to live and breathe. When looking at exoplanets, astronomers often look for this sort of chemical information. By observing the light transmitted by the exoplanet, they can find the chemicals that make up the planet's atmosphere and even the surface temperature of the planet. Recently, researchers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, used Hubble Space Telescope data to detect an atmosphere on the exoplanet GJ1132b. They found spectral traces for hydrogen, hydrogen cyanide, and methane. They also measured the temperature to be about 480 degrees Kelvin, or 400 degrees Fahrenheit. How did they calculate all this, though? They observed the electromagnetic spectrum of the planet while it passed in front of its host star. When a planet passes in front of its star, it obscures the star, blocking some of the light from reaching us. This creates a dip in the total amount of light that we can see coming from the star. Observing this decrease in brightness and how often it happens is known as the transit method of detecting exoplanets. From this method, astronomers can determine how long it takes for the planet to orbit its host star. However, this measurement of change in total light coming from the star tells us little about the atmosphere of the exoplanet. To learn more about the atmosphere, astronomers require spectral observations, which measure the intensity at different wavelengths of light. Let's talk for a second about that. Our most common interaction with the wavelength of light is when we see colors. I've got a blue book and a red book sitting beside me. While we often say that objects are reflecting light, they can also be described as re-emitting the light. The atoms in the cover of each book absorb light, exciting the electrons in each atom to higher energies. The atoms in the cover then relax, and the electrons will release the light again, but at a specific wavelength, thanks to quantum mechanics. Of course, that's all happening much faster than we can perceive with our eyes. In this example, the blue book is absorbing light and re-emits just the light with wavelength around 430 nanometers, which is what we call blue light. The red book is re-emitting light with a wavelength of about 700 nanometers, which is what we call red light. Astronomers often break down the total light we observe from a star into this wavelength dependence with spectrometers. Similar to the lens in our own eyes, spectrometers use complicated optics to split up the light from a faraway source. The Hubble Space Telescope has a spectrometer on it, and this is what allowed researchers to detect the atmosphere of planet GJ1132b. Since there is an atmosphere around the planet, the atmosphere can absorb and re-emit certain wavelengths of light. The wavelengths of light it re-emits are determined by the gas in its atmosphere just like how the color of a book's cover is determined by the chemicals placed on the cover. In this case, data showed there was a peak in the spectrum at a wavelength of 1.53 microns, which is the characteristic emission wavelength for hydrogen cyanide. There's also a slope in the spectrum over a large range of wavelengths, which is characteristic of a hydrogen gas with temperature 480 degrees Kelvin. The researchers suggest this is actually the planet's second atmosphere, and that it is made by volcanic activity. The planet is really close to the star, so it really shouldn't have a detectable atmosphere. By now, the planet's atmosphere should have been removed as a result of solar wind and intense heating, similar to the reason Mercury does not have a complete atmosphere. Astronomers predict the planet has intense volcanic activity, which launches this weird mix of chemicals into the atmosphere, and those chemicals are held there by a magnetosphere that developed between when the planet lost its initial atmosphere and now. Of course, the researchers were limited by the precision of their data, since the planet and star are so dim, it's really difficult to see the planet and star. 
Until then, at least we know that GJ1132B is a horrible vacation destination. Thank you for tuning in to Radio Astronomy today, and I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew. Dave Lawrenson engineered this show. Nate Buggy Howe produced this newscast. And Shelly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe via your preferred source for audio on demand. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrique Patio. Good night.